0: nice to be back here. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Though a seeker since my birth, here is all I've learned on earth. This, the gist of all I know, give advice and buy a foe. Random truths are all I find, stuck like burrs about my mind. Salve a blister, burn a letter, do not wash a cashmere sweater. Tell a tale, but seldom twice. Give a stone before advice. Pressed for rules and verities, all I recollect are these. Feed a cold and starve a fever. Argue with no true believer. (laughs) Think too long is never act. Scratch a myth and find a fact. Stitch in time saves 20 stitches. Give the rich to please them riches. Give to love your hearth and hall, but do not give advice at all. So writes one of my favorite poets, Phyllis McGinley, in what is, when you think about it, a piece of advice, right? But somewhat daunting counsel to a preacher who might be said to be in the business of distributing advice wholesale on a regular basis. It's an impertinent profession, this job of mine, and a little quaint into the bargain. After all, any advice you might actually want these days is available at the click of a key from Google and YouTube If you can't find a TED Talk that will solve your problem in 10 minutes, Amazon surely has a plethora of self-help books that can be delivered to your door tomorrow. So what's with this business of getting out of bed and showing up at an assembly on Sunday morning, hoping that the person up front might randomly say something relevant? Now, I am familiar with the theory that it's really all about community here, and I could just as well get up and read the phone book. Phone book? What's that? (laughs) Or let's just say the congressional record. And the most important thing would still be that you are here with people who care about you and each other. I get that. But more or less every week for 30 years now, I have been suspending my disbelief and digging into the stuff of my life and our lives together on this planet to try to discover some vein of meaning and courage that might help people connect to each other and keep us going for another little while in spite of all our losses and failures, and disappointments. I thought it might be glamorous when I started out, but it's not. I have come to love the gritty everydayness and the slog of it, though the familiar heart-lurching panic that finally this time there really is nothing whatsoever left to say that everyone hasn't heard a million times, the possibility that even I will be bored by the time the sermon mercifully ends, (laughs) the sinking suspicion that every person in the congregation has a more coherent sense of purpose in their lives than I do, the all-too-probable likelihood that I have this weird, irrational passion for obscure religious ideas that nobody else cares about. And yet we keep on doing this thing. Every Sunday morning, folks show up and I carve out some thoughts that maybe light the world a little differently and... If we are lucky, something magical happens and we go away feeling better about ourselves and about life than we did when we came. For me, and probably for most of you, this process is not about God. At least certainly not about the big eye in the sky watching over us, the intentional creator and judge the personal infinite that we can love. In the view of many people, including, I suspect, author David Brooks, that fact makes me a secular person. You too, perhaps. It sounds to me as though Brooks is fascinated by secularism as I am fascinated by religion. And he returned to the subject in his recent New York Times column, which we just heard from. So let me acknowledge that I have appreciated Brooks since his 2001 book, Bobos in Paradise, offered a hilarious and thought-provoking portrait of the bourgeois bohemian social class to which I and most of the Unitarian Universalists I know squarely belong. I found him insightful and provocative then, and I find his recent reflections on building a better secularism, insightful and provocative now. His central contention is one that I have been advocating throughout the course of my ministry, and indeed throughout my life as a born and raised Unitarian Universalist humanist. And I invite you to follow me for a few minutes in some reflections on the extent to which he is right and also perhaps wrong in his aspiration for folks like many of us. Brooks is right, it seems clear to me, in his contention that to be a thoughtful, ethically mature and fulfilled secular person is not as easy as it looks. He is more or less correct that we must construct for ourselves rather than inheriting our sense of life purpose and our motivation to be moral people, as well as creating our own structures, our own communities for care and support, and our own processes for attention to the inner life, such as rituals or Sabbath. These are some daunting challenges, as I can testify from my own experience. In the Bobos in Paradise book, Brooks describes the entire bourgeois bohemian approach to life as building a house of obligation upon a foundation of choice. Think about that for a moment. Building a house of obligation upon a foundation of choice. Isn't that a perfect description of the heritage of covenantal free thought? We make a foundational choice to enter into this community of memory and promise. And in so doing, we undertake a whole network of obligations to each other, to ourselves, to the past and the future, to the world. But none of these obligations can be imposed. They are, as has been said of other forms of religious commitment, too heavy a burden to be borne unconsenting. They cannot be handed to us. We must choose them for ourselves. And in choosing them, we also undertake the ongoing responsibility of constructing them. We become part of the process by which the enlightenment heritage of freedom, reason, and mutual compassion is carried forward in human understanding and behavior. That is how we build the house of obligation in which our lives are sheltered, where the community that sustains us can dwell. David Brooks is not wrong when he observes that this is a challenging way to live with no one handing us the answers, but having to figure out and create these structures for ourselves. Neither you nor I nor any other humanist or secular person can be fully alive and fully human if we do not, as he advises take account of the role of the passions in our pursuit of moral action. If we fail to respond to the spiritual urge in each of us, the drive for what he calls purity, self-transcendence, and sanctification. But let me show you why I believe this so deeply and why that belief leads me to contend that Brooks has, in a sense, missed his own point. Over the past century, neuropsychology has demonstrated with great regularity in all kinds of laboratories that no matter how rational you or I may claim to be and intend to be, the actual way in which we make decisions are really a patchwork of emotions, guesswork, impulses, peer pressure, and gambles based on whatever information happens to be handy. Madison Avenue uses this awareness to extract billions of dollars from us, and the current Congress illustrates the outcome. (laughs) The process of evolution operates by trial and error, and so do we, far less consciously than we think. We are never creatures of pure rationality, as our fascination with characters like Mr. Spock and Data from Star Trek demonstrates. Their emotionless way of being is truly alien to human consciousness. We are barely capable of imagining it. In its traditional form, religion understands this reality of the human condition. And it seeks to use our proclivities for emotional loyalty and habit, our idealism and hunger for self-transcendence, and our moral passions as a counterweight to the power of cruelty, selfishness, and all our worst impulses in the service of love and the common good. This is what Brooks is suggesting that secularism must find a way to do if it is to give a significant percentage of human beings a socially competent and satisfying way to live. And yet, as we who have had occasion to examine critically the histories of traditional religion are well aware the very effort that it represents has too often been counterproductive. And indeed, the human capacity for sacrificial devotion to uncompromising belief and unquestioned authority to self-proclaimed messiahs and self-righteous suffering does not even need to call itself religion in order to wreak its havoc. In witness whereof, I offer you what are to me the three most terrifying minutes in all of cinema from the movie Cabaret. Observe with me that the only way we know what is wrong with this picture is that we know history. We are aware of what follows from the claim That tomorrow belongs to me, announced by someone wearing a Nazi armband. To my mind, this is a sacred task for humanity to keep that awareness alive and not forget. Whenever people start singing this anthem or its equivalent in innocent sincerity, we are once again in deep trouble. And this is my counterpoint to David Brooks. Not that he is wrong about the challenges that confront secular people, but rather that traditional religion does not actually get you off this particular hook. Let's have a little thought experiment About a faithful believer who participated in burning heretics, instructed and approved by his human religious leaders, arriving at the gates of heaven to face God's judgment. A little imagination, if you please, don't squirm, just picture a New Yorker cartoon. The God who would say to such an individual, well done, good and faithful servant, you did as you were told, is a God unworthy of any intelligent person's worship. The only morally coherent way that any God can respond to such an applicant is to say, you should have known better. You should have known that this could not be my will. At which point it is totally legitimate for the believer to reply, how? How was I to know that what the designated authorities of my religious tradition were telling me was not actually God's will? The only way this could have happened would have been for the believer to step outside the structures of that community and tradition and to judge its demands on the basis of some external ethical authority. At which point, he confronts a demand very little different from that of the secularist, who must settle on her own sacred convictions and moral motivation. In short, history has shown it to be impossible for individuals to resign their responsibility for personal discernment of right and wrong into the hands of any religious heritage or institution precisely because those heritages and institutions are human, always have been and always will be subject to human finitude. Whenever our collective capacity for purity, self-transcendence, and sanctification is placed blindly in the service of any finite cause, especially one that thinks it is speaking on behalf of ultimate reality, tyranny becomes inevitable and somebody suffers. Most often the folks who are scrambling to defend their principled dissent from that authority. However, I do not contend that human beings either can or should lay aside those capacities for idealism, moral aspiration, service to the common good, and self-sacrificing love. We know from experience that getting rid of them doesn't work and wouldn't help. Indeed, they, as much as anything, are what makes and keeps us human. Part of our evolutionary legacy is that we resonate together at the limbic level when we are confronted by certain types of experience. We can be either spiritually stimulated or emotionally melted by such events, either exalted into grandeur or reduced, as we sometimes say, to tears. Music can do that to us and nostalgia, children and cute puppies, or gazing into another person's eyes, these all can have that ah-melt factor, evoking tenderness and a protective impulse, even for that which has no practical usefulness. A similar process rouses our enthusiasm and sense of purpose, especially in groups At sporting events, go Royals, or social justice rallies, making us feel that we are prepared to lay our costliest sacrifices on the altar of the cause at hand because we are part of something much larger than our unique selves or even our momentary collective task humans simply would not be the poignant and precious creatures that we are without those capacities, who wants to live a life without nobility or commitment to lofty goals or heroism. David Brooks is correct and more perceptive than many other commentators in seeing that those qualities are not exclusive to the conventional religious path. Secular people have those same feelings and experiences, we just don't attribute them to a divine source. And he is also right that it is our responsibility to create a new language with which to describe and invoke them if we are going to cut ourselves off from the ancient rituals of and poetry of reverence that are the patrimony of religious tradition. And so be it. But recognizing the role of emotion and transcendence in human motivation and decision-making is not a counsel of despair to the secularist or the humanist. Rather, it is a summons to self-awareness, maturity, responsibility, modesty, and intentionality. And there is no religion which allows us to dispense with that summons, that frees us from the need to examine the structures and imperatives that we inherit, so as to assess their moral validity. That's what we are about here, I suppose, and in my congregation, in case the connection isn't clear. Right here, in this covenant community of memory and promise every week, We are trying to build fellowship and create an authentic vocabulary of reverence for those of us who are not satisfied by the old forms. We understand that humanity does not live by reason alone, or even primarily. We also realize that our most deeply felt idealism can be co-opted to serve violence and greed and oppression and the hunger for power if we are careless with it. And yet that loyalty must be given at some point to something. It doesn't serve the common good and it doesn't serve our individual integrity to try to withhold our assent from every attempt to put our values into play in the world. Unless we finally give them human hands and human faces and institutional structures. Our ideals will have no power to shape the society that shapes us. They can make no difference in anyone's life, including our own. Last May, I celebrated the 35th anniversary of my ordination to the ministry, and before that, in March, I turned 60. For more than half my life, then, I have been engaged in the work to which Mr. Brooks commends us, building a house of obligation upon a foundation of choice, arousing the higher emotions, exalting our passions in the service of moral action and the highest good. It is not glamorous, but it is exhilarating. And in that process, I have discovered my best chance of becoming a thoughtful, ethically mature, and personally fulfilled individual who finds my spiritual sustenance here in this world in the memory and promise of covenant community that I share with folks much like you. I actually happen to think That God or no God, theist or secularist, this is the best hope that any of us has.